Hi, my name is Monique and you are listening to the Chronic Illness Unfiltered podcast. Here at Chronic Illness Unfiltered, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Chronic Illness Unfiltered podcast is recorded on Wadandi country. On this podcast, we will be discussing the highs, lows and all that comes with being diagnosed and living with a chronic illness. Come along as we share the personal stories of others who live with chronic illnesses and what they've learned along the way. Please note this podcast is intended for sharing personal stories, discussing relevant topics and is not promoting any personal medical advice. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Chronic Illness Unfiltered podcast. This is our first episode for 2023 and I'm really excited for all this year has to offer. I hope that you all had a really beautiful Christmas and New Year's or holiday period, however you choose to celebrate. In today's episode, I will be talking with my sister, Sophie. She's our first guest on the podcast. We are going to be talking a lot about her medical history and diagnoses that started from around the age of one. Sophie has currently been diagnosed with juvenile arthritis, avascular necrosis, complex regional pain syndrome, clinical depression and generalised anxiety disorder. Sophie is currently under further investigation for post-traumatic stress disorder, functional neurological disorder and scoliosis. A trigger warning, today's episode does dive into mental illness and health conditions, suicide, depression, anxiety, medical gaslighting. If this is not the right time for you to be listening to this episode, then I highly encourage you to skip um, and come back to it at a later date if you choose to or just wait or listen to some of our other episodes. Um, I'm really excited to bring this episode to you all today. Sophie, I'm probably a little biased being her sister, but has a really inspiring story and journey and has really gone through a lot in her very short time here on earth at only almost 18 years old. So I am, yeah, really excited to share with you. All right, take two. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Mon. We literally just recorded this episode and the audio did not work. So we are going again. Going again? Yes. Sophie, did you want to tell us a little bit about who you are, how old you are, and yeah a little bit more about you yeah sure so my name is sophie i'm actually monique's little sister um i think i'm nine years younger than you um yeah i think so yeah Yeah, i think so the way i remember it is there's five years between me and jack four years between between you and jack and and then three three years years between you and kobe yeah yeah don't know how mum managed that one but anyway um yeah so i'm 17 um i live in a regional town i go up to the city once a week for uni um that's pretty much me and what tell us a little bit more about your medical history i suppose and how that all began so i was first diagnosed with um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis when i was one year old So it was actually the first time my grandpa had ever seen, well, our grandpa had ever seen me walk. And he just noticed that there was something not quite right. So mum took me to the doctor and a couple weeks or months later, I'm not really sure, they were like, yep, something isn't quite right. 
she has arthritis and then progressively it spread from the one knee where it started all over my body so I have it pretty much everywhere I have it in my ankles my knees my hips my shoulders my elbows my wrists my fingers my toes all of it and so what was your if you remember your initial treatment for your arthritis Initially, they wanted me on um, anti-inflammatories, but we found out pretty quickly that I am allergic to all of them except for steroidals. So I used to, like, even stuff like Nurofen, I used to take it and then just get these wicked blood noses. Yeah, I remember those. (laughs) I would just, like, gush and gush and gush, just huge amounts of blood. And um, our mum actually has a phobia of blood, so it was just not not gonna work um so they had me on steroid injections for a very long time until they started causing complications as well and if i remember correctly were those steroid injections at first like kind of that was the only option yeah pretty much like you could it was a combination of that in physio but that was pretty much the limit of what they could do for me considering my age and my allergies And then from there, when you were around the age of, I think it was when you were around the age of seven, that's when kind of the investigation for the vascular necrosis came about. And what do they think had caused that? Um, So that was actually, it was a long process to get that properly diagnosed. I actually had to switch rheumatologists to get a correct diagnosis because they had done what's called an open biopsy. So they had put me under general anaesthetic And they've literally cut open my leg to look inside it and try and figure out what was wrong. And they just, the rheumatologist that I had at the time just couldn't figure it out. So we went to um, a new one, Sank, who you'll hear me and Mon, like, praising all the time. He's amazing. He's He's a fabulous, fabulous doctor, fabulous guy. Like, he's just, he's amazing. Legend. Absolutely is absolutely amazing and he diagnosed me pretty much the first time that I saw him with ABM. Because initially they had misdiagnosed you with um, osteoporosis? Yeah, Yeah, they did. And so, sorry, you go. Osteoporosis isn't, like it is a diagnosis, but at the time it was a diagnosis which pretty much meant there's something there but I don't know what it is. Yeah. That's what osteoporosis pretty much meant i don't know if it means something different now i haven't looked into it but at the time that's what it was and do you want to explain a little bit more about what avn is and how they think that it was caused in your specific case yeah so avn stands for avascular necrosis it's a big long latin word that pretty much means um well it means death of bone is the literal translation but what it pretty much means is that the blood flow to your bones is not working correctly so your bones are not getting enough blood supply are not getting enough fresh blood and so they actually start to decompose and die and break apart inside you and it happens slowly over time but it does it's quite a um it can be a very extreme condition and it's um yeah it's they believe that it um was caused by the actual steroid injections that i was on to treat my arthritis yeah and um 
so initially when you were around the age of seven you had had like a fall or something had happened and you'd ended up in a yeah. cast and that's when they initially kind of re- like realized that something was not quite right yeah but they just couldn't the first rheumatologist i had so the rheumatologist i had from ages one to about 10 until i went to sink was a very much more of a um traditional kind of children are kind of seen not heard kind of guy so there was a lot of you know mum used to exclusively talk for me in those appointments so even when I tried to explain you know yes I did fall over and yes that is why my why it hurts really bad right now it actually was hurting before now but that wasn't really being understood or taken on board like it probably should have yeah and so like we were saying initially Sophie had had well like there was a fall that happened and then yeah they thought that you had like initially they thought you broke a bone and then yeah it kind of progressed into there and so a lot of the scans that you like have since now had it actually looks like like bones in your ankles have just like disintegrated and disappeared yeah there's there's full gaps in my ankles where there should be bone there but it's just it's not there's just empty space and fluid. Yeah. And so what has your treatment for that condition looked like um, so far? When I was younger, it wasn't anything overly extreme. It was a lot of, you know, casts and splints and that kind of thing. I had a wheelchair for a long time when I was younger that I would use off and on depending on the day. But um, as I got older and my condition progressed and got worse, I actually had to have a lot of quite... Um, you know, extreme surgery to try and correct it at the um, time. So I had what's called an external fixator and I had them on both ankles to fuse my ankles back together. But at the time when we were first discussing it, the options that mum was pretty much given was that or amputation. So it's like, and that's a pretty extreme thing to say, really. Like it was, it was obviously an extreme like situation, but at the time when I started having these surgeries, I was 14. So you're, you're talking about, you know, cutting off a 14-year-old's legs. And it wasn't just one of them. It was going to be both of them. So it, was a, it wasn't an easy decision for me or for mum because they were very – they were hard surgeries. They were a lot of recovery time and a lot of therapy and a lot of infections and a lot of risks. So it was just – it was a very – it was an extreme thing. And so because of those external fixators and the like open wounds that were visible on the outside, that meant that she was more susceptible to infections and things like that. And how long did those um, – so you had to have those on both legs, but how long did yep. you have to keep those on for? The first one was about 10 months. So it's there's stages. So the first period is when the actual thing is on your leg. So for my left leg, that was eight months, eight months or eight, between eight and ten months with the actual X fix on and then six weeks in a cast and then another month in a moon boot. And, and then, then it I, was shortly. And then how long was it after that that you had the second one? Um, a couple months, if that. Yeah. And then... Um, the second one was a bit shorter because my left leg has always been worse in everything the arthritis was worse the avn was worse so the right leg i think was between six and eight months 
in the X Fix and in the same, you know, six weeks in a cast, one month in a moon boot. And essentially the aim, well, the kind of purpose of that surgery was a f- like a ankle fusion as such. Yeah. Um, and it was so... literally them trying to like, not glue, but pretty much try to glue my bones back together and get them to regrow around each other. Yeah. And so now, I mean, I think your range of movement in your like ankle was pretty bad before then anyway, but now it's it pretty much nothing. Yeah. So they actually, they measured the degree. So like when you think of like, when you're dancing, like how a ballerina points their toes. Yeah. They actually measured that. So I think before the surgeries, I had like 35 degrees in my left foot and like 45 degrees in my right. And now I have five degrees in my left foot and like seven or eight degrees in my right. Yeah. And then um, on top of that, you were also diagnosed with um, complex regional pain syndrome as well. And then what age did that kind of come about? That was when I was about, I want to say 10, because I was in year five at the time, because it actually got to the point where I had to be hospitalised for it. I pretty much had to, like, relearn how to walk because it got to the point where I was fully in my wheelchair. I couldn't handle wearing pants a lot of the time. I couldn't handle socks. I couldn't handle shoes. I couldn't have a blanket on my feet, like, you touch my feet like light as anything and I would scream as if you were stabbing me. Yeah, and then um well eventually years later I ended up with the di- with the same diagnosis. So yours affects your legs as well. Mine started yes. in my right ankle as the result of a dancing injury and now affects me in both of my legs and that is quite a rare um it's, it's a rare thing to see a family pattern of it yeah and I mean it's quite a rare condition I think to begin with let alone to yeah. have two yeah two people you know in the, yeah, same, in family the, in the same family diagnosed and to with be it so close as well it would be more believable believable if we were extended family but we're we're literally sisters so it was quite it's quite an interesting thing and I do think that it's more known about in the US in America because it goes by the, you know, nickname the suicide disease over there. So there's a lot more talk about it over there, but I don't think there's any better treatment. And it was actually given that nickname because because it's so rare, and this is a problem with rare diseases, is because it doesn't affect a huge po- like um, amount of the population nobody's really looking for treatment nobody's really looking for a cure because there are bigger things like if you look at the research and treatment that goes into crps compared to say cancer so 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 different and that's not to say that it shouldn't be like cancer is obviously a very big thing and it affects a lot of people but it just means that people who have rare diseases really just don't tend to have an easy go of it and people I mean I've seen stories of people with CRPS that you know they are bed bound they they can't walk they can't move there are cases of people that will have limbs amputated due to CRPS Um, and it's recently been legalized in Canada for um you know legal euthanasia you can pretty much legally get assistance in killing yourself if you have CRPS over there 
yeah, it's awful. And so um, something else that we were kind of talking about before this whole audio issue was um, an experience that you had had last year um, in regards to kind of some new things that were going on with you with seizures and things like that that was a result of a bone infection. Did you want to discuss that? So while I was having the external fixators on my legs, um, I was getting infections pretty much every week. I was on a constant stream of antibiotics, but we assumed that, you know, once the X-Fix went off and everything was healed, then it would no longer be a problem. Um, That was obviously not correct because I think it was a span of literally overnight. I went from being... You know, I literally, I went out to a mate's birthday. We went to the movies and to the arcade and we were running and running amok and, you know, doing all these things and I was fine. And then I woke up the next day feeling absolutely the most disgusting I have felt in my entire life. Um, and I went out and hung out with Nicole for a bit, who at the time was my carer. Um, and we had gone out to the shops or whatever and... We were just walking back to the car and I ended up, like, passing out on the floor, like, maybe 10 metres away from their car. And she took me to the hospital and they did an ultrasound over one of the old wound sites and they found pretty much, like, a, a pocket full of pus embedded in my bone. Yeah, and then that kind of was leading you to having, like, really high temperatures and then the onset yeah. of these seizures that were pretty much happening, like, every five to ten minutes minutes for like weeks yeah and so this then ended up you were in hospital um you were admitted to our local hospital and then eventually taken up to the children's like the children's ward yeah continued so the children's ward is quite familiar with you because it's somewhere that you have been yeah i've had treatments there my whole life my whole life, very familiar with all the nurse and all the nurses and the medical teams and everyone going on there. Yeah, and they're amazing. And then, um, like I remember this one day that we had come up. Well, I had come up to visit you in the hospital with Mum, and it was shortly after you were admitted and taken up there. But you had started having like, and I don't think I know that you like it was common for you to have seizures after an operation. Yeah. But they they were, like, not kind of like this. And I know, like, even mum couldn't watch. So yeah, every time it happened, we were, like, extreme. yeah, we were out of the room. like, And I was, like, I was desatting, which pretty much means, like, my oxygen level was going down. My heart rate was spiking up all of it. Yeah, and so eventually you were taken over to the ICU unit in the hospital. They were, there were, like, discussions of needing to have an operation. There were discussions of transferring you to a hospital in the city, which is two hours away from where we live. Um, those discussions had started. They Like, it was a definite, yep, we're going to send her up to Perth, but that trip didn't actually happen for a couple of days. Yeah, it's quite hard coming from a regional town organizing those things aren't it's not an easy thing it's a lot of procedures and protocol and where are we going to send you and you know is it going to be this ambulance or that ambulance and where are you going to go when you get there and 
all those kind of things. So it was a diff- it was difficult getting me up there. And then once I was up there, it was supposed to be the day that I got up there that I got surgery to actually take that bit of infected bone out of my leg. But even that didn't end up happening until the week after. Yeah, and even that um, that being transferred up to Perth. So we you had to go up by ambulance. The seizures yep. weren't controlled. So there were quite a few people in that ambulance with you on the yeah. trip up. And I think you were, yeah, like you were saying, you were having like seizures pretty much constantly. I'm pretty sure yeah, that, yeah. It I'm, was like I'd get 30 seconds to like catch my breath and then I'd have another one. And during this time that these seizures were happening, the and how many did you say that you think it was per day at that point? Like, honestly, between 50 and 100. Yeah. And then you were not being administered any medication to treat the seizures because... They were um, they were marked down already because they investigated after the, them after I started having them after surgery. So they were already kind of marked down as um, psychosomatic. Obviously, they retested me once I went up to Perth, but at the time, they were giving me n- nothing seizure wise to help with any of them yeah and so then it was just bang 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 one after the other after the other and another reason that they needed you to go up there was because they couldn't get clear imaging of you down here yeah obviously every due time to those they'd seizures. get me into the machine i'd go into another fit so they just couldn't get clear imaging of anything really and then, yeah, eventually they took you through for um, the surgery and then you ended up in ICU again for a couple of days after that? Yeah, that was because um, in – so they call it, um, like, recess, so it's after you have surgery. Um, I just woke up in that much pain. I think you had some that, drains as well. Yeah, yeah, and that is the grossest thing. I have ever seen coming out of my body. I had to get them to cover my leg with a blanket because it grossed me out to look at it. But they just pumped me full of all these pain meds and then I started having the seizures and desatting again. So they put me in the ICU, I want to say for maybe a week and a half. Yeah, and then it was onto a ward. There was a really lovely nurse on that ward though. Matt. Shout out to Matt. We love Matt. <laughs> Bloody legend bloody legend he was like he was my probably the only human companion i had for 90 percent of the time i was in there because they were very strict on visiting hours and regulations and they were very understaffed so yeah and so during this whole time where we lived there was a like escalational spike of covid cases so why yeah. Sophie was in our um, local hospital, they were really quite – I think they were actually more strict on visitors at the local hospital than they were at the so I think city took, hospital. I think it took me having a breakdown and Nicole getting all across to be able to get me, you, Jack and Nicole all in the room together. Yeah, and so we had to go down on like a list and if you weren't on the list, you couldn't go in and – then it was like, you know, then there was the speak of the transfer to Perth happening and not knowing how long you were going to be there or if anybody could even visit. And so, yeah, it was really frustrating just trying to, you know, people wanting to 
you know, family wanting to come and see you before you left and, you know, not knowing how long you were going to be gone for and things like that yeah. as well. And then given your um, age, you know, then there was a lot of, there at was a first, real breakdown of sure. conversation. Like, I think at first they were considering sending me to the children's hospital in the city yeah. and then it was decided that I was too old. Yeah, and so that children's hospital is, you know, you've pretty much been going there your entire life. So your yeah. medical history there is very, very well known. And I think, yeah, you and know. It's the same thing with the local hospital where I know a lot of the staff there and I've known them for years, whereas the hospital I ended up going to, I didn't know anyone, you guys didn't know anyone, mum didn't know anyone. To this day, I still don't know who's the like with the name of the doctor who operated on me. No, no, and that was another thing. There was a real bad, like, real breakdown in communication. Yeah. So because of the age, you know, you were seventeen at the time. Yeah. So they were trying to. I was at that age where the doctors were trying to directly give me information, and not mum. But because I was so unwell and on so much medication, I was just not processing 90% of what was being said to me. So it was only being said to me and then I was calling mum and trying to tell mum and I obviously was not getting it through very well either. And then mum was trying to get in contact with the doctors, but for whatever reason that couldn't happen properly because of my age and it was just was a bit of a shit show really yeah and like we were saying with our regional hospital it's not it's not huge it's small compared to the hospital you ended up going to in the city yeah but you know generally when you need help it's seconds away the nurse's station is very close to kind of where all the beds are so yeah. but when you had gone up to the hospital in the city it was the wards were quite large and so yeah. I remember there was one day where we had gone to visit so the visiting hours were between 10 and 12 and 5 and 7 we had gone to visit and we got there like just after 10 and not long after we got there you had had a seizure and we'd called for the nurse and the nurse came in and the nurse was like oh this is the first one she's had all morning and we were just kind of like, oh, but like, is it though? Because or is it just the first one you've seen? seen? Because you're so understaffed and you're so far away. And where you were was like really far away from where the nurses were. Yeah, like it was, it was like, like down the hall. Yeah, it was like down the down hall, the hall down, the down a different, no, down, down a different corridor. A little bloody maze in there. Yeah, it was. And so then, yeah, eventually you had a pick line inserted. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of like a like a more permanent IV. Yeah, because you were going to be needing IV antibiotics that they were yeah. planning to do from home each day. But then the organisation of that wasn't really done well either because we got down here and realised, okay, so none of the at-home hospital stuff has actually been set up. And it even got to the point where we gave, you know, we, we sorted that out and the hospital staff came came over and we gave them the discharge notes and I watched this lady and she was trying to read these discharge notes and she was like I'm gonna have to actually call this hospital because there is not enough information in here for me to be able to not accidentally hurt you yeah um, and then it was like 24 like not even 24 hours after you had gotten home that you ended back up in our regional hospital local hospital again. yeah and I had spiked 
like a 42 degree fever. Kobe, who was our little brother, it got to the point where I was lying in his bed and he was lying next to me while our mum and her boyfriend were packing the car. And I think even on the way to the hospital, I'm sure that I was told that like mum's partner was definitely speeding and there was definitely a point where he hit a curb or something because they were just like, I was seriously unwell. Like I was almost delusional. Yeah, and then when you had got to the hospital, you ended up staying in the emergency department. It was at least two nights, I'm pretty sure, because I remember coming yeah. to visit you. Oh, there was a truck that went past, sorry. I um came to visit you in the ER, and I remember walking in and seeing you in the bed. You were, like, barely opening your eyes. You were red. You were, pu- like, puffy. You were sweating. I don't think that you – you definitely wouldn't remember, like, wouldn't have remembered no, me being there. I can't. Yeah, I was going to say, I have absolutely no recollection of what you're talking about. Yeah. None whatsoever. And so now, like, given it's been, or like, almost a year, probably soon in the next couple of months, it's been almost yeah. a year since that. So how do you find that you are – like, how are you going now after all of that? The um, bone infection has completely healed up. Um, walking as good as I probably am going to. Um, got a decent new scarf for it. I actually like it better than what was there before, mm-hmm. so it's not bad. Um, the seizures are still an issue. I actually went to a neurologist last week. To, so I'm booked in for another EEG on the 18th, which is like a brain scan. They connect a bunch of stuff to your head and then... I don't actually understand how that works, to be perfectly honest, but it's a brain scan of some description. Um, And she's absolutely lovely, which was really refreshing because one thing that these seizures have really opened my eyes to, which I don't think I was... I don't know if it was just because mum was the primary, like, carer for me when I was obviously younger and I just didn't experience it a lot because she kept it from me. But these seizures have just completely opened my eyes to, like, the world of medical gaslighting. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about how you experienced it with your endo, and this is probably the first time where I've ever experienced it to the extent that you were explaining it to me. And it's just ridiculous, really. Yeah, so there was at one point when you, the second time you had gone back, like after you'd come home from the hospital in Perth and gone back to the, I think it was then, I think it was the second time around. Yeah, I think I think it was as and, well. And um, you had had a seizure and a nurse had come into the room and turned around to our mum and said, um, oh, she's doing it to herself. Yeah, like she just needs to stop. And I remember mum telling me that later. And I just felt so, like, I felt defeated because I was, like, I was struggling in a way that I had never experienced. And instead of the, you know, the support that I was used to from the wonderful medical team that I had as a child, I was getting, you know, questioned and called a liar about it. And it was just this overwhelming fit like feeling of like really what the fuck like like there's this 
really real and sometimes quite dangerous thing that's happening happened to me because we were talking about it before. Tristan, who is our mum's partner, has caught me, I want to say, at least 15 times and stopped me from seriously hurting myself by, like, banging my head on a kitchen bench or a table or the corner of a couch. And I just think, how can you like see a situation where I would have 100% given myself a concussion like or split my head open or something and then turn around and say that that's on purpose it's just it was it was really mind-blowing to me yeah and another thing too is that this situation so you're unable to drive yeah for so the current law I believe in Western Australia is that you have to be two years seizure free in order to operate a vehicle. And how um, how long seizure free are you? Two days. <laughs> two whole days. So it's not happening for a while? No, probably no. not. And so while this whole ordeal was happening last year, it actually happened, you were in year 12 at the time and while during this exam happening, season. During exam season. So... Um, but your kind of graduation story, I suppose, was like, it's crazy. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah. So my attendance has always been very low, even when I wasn't having hospital visits that last three months because of bone infections. So last year was year 12. And at the time of my graduation, I had 55% attendance. And despite that, I graduated the top student in my year. So I had the highest overall mark in two of my subjects. I was the highest um, A-grade achieving student and I was part of our academics honour club. And now you are about to start going to uni as well. Well, I have started going to uni. My first day was last week. Yes. And what are you studying? A Bachelor of Film. Yeah, that's awesome. And so even that has kind of had to be re-kind of jigged a little bit. So your initial plan was moving to Perth? My initial plan was going to be to move up to Perth and to study full-time while on Centrelink. Um, But me and my friend, Caitlin, recently went up to Perth um, to check out a rental. so, and we got up there and we checked it out and everything was fine. But then on the way back, because she had only recently got her license and the per- it was, you know, city traffic that she wasn't quite used to. And then the person in front of us kept brake checking us. So eventually we ended up slamming into the back of this car. Um, and, you know, we weren't hurt nobody was hurt but it just really stressed me out um so I ended up having a seizure on the side of the road and I was taken to hospital and pumped full of drugs that weren't really doing anything but completely like knocked me out of it so I woke up in the hospital with no idea where I was or how I got there or who all these people around me touching me were so I did what um, any sane person who woke up in a place they wouldn't recognise highly drugged with a bunch of people touching them would do, and I tried to bolt. Like, I fully tried to run out of this hospital. So 
security came and, you know, they ended up having to hold me down and sedate me and it was just not a good experience at all. It, you know, re-triggered a lot of PTSD. So me and mum kind of had a conversation and decided that until we could get these seizures more under control, that wasn't, that moving to Perth was going to have to go on the back burner because that wasn't an experience that I wanted to have every single time someone who didn't know me know me saw me having a seizure. Yeah, because I suppose like any person that sees that happen, their instinct would They're be go- to, call to call it an ambulance. Yeah, whereas now, you know, it's we know a little bit more about it. It's not necessarily something that you don't need to go to hospital when these happen no. at the moment. At the moment, not unless they're quiet, like um, unless they're spanning a like really long time, or there's a lot of them. Like, uh, if it gets to the point where mum, because it's usually mum's judgment that we all fall back on a little bit. If it gets to the point where mum is no longer comfortable that I am safe where I am, that's when we call an ambulance. But before yeah. then, I. 90% of the time it's unnecessary because what ha- what's happening at the moment is I have a seizure. It lasts between, you know, 30 seconds and 10 minutes typically. And then I lie down for another 10 minutes and I'm fine. Yeah. But a random stranger sees you on the floor having a fit. They call an ambulance. An ambulance pumps you full of drugs. Now you're in a hospital and it's just a lot more drama than it well drama is probably not the right word but then also given that you have a very extensive medical history you know allergies and things like that that you can't necessarily communicate when you're in that state as well it can almost be more dangerous yeah yeah and so what has that that has obviously meant that you have had to kind of rejig your plans for uni so what does that look like for you at the moment Well, at the moment, I am going up to the city one day a week. I'm going up on Tuesdays. I'm catching a train way too early in the morning. (laughs) And then going up there, I'm only taking two units this trimester. And then, you know, we'll see in the future if I feel like I can handle being up there more. But I go up there, I do two lectures. I can stay for a bit longer in the afternoon to get some more study done. And then I catch the train back down here. Yeah. And in terms of working as well, I know that it's, you know, your medical conditions and kind of the way that that was handled at a most recent job was not the greatest. Did you want to explain a little bit more about that? The, The tough thing with discrimination against people who have disabilities is a lot of the time it's not always intentional. That was something that I really struggled with was trying to voice, you know, my concerns about the way I was being treated, but also trying to be delicate of the fact that it wasn't it wasn't someone intentionally being rude or disrespectful. It was just someone expecting me to be able to do the same that an able-bodied person could do and then getting frustrated when I couldn't. Yes, preach it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, like just in general, like in general, like generalized. You know, you see someone walking down the street and think, "Oh, like they can do anything." 
but it's yeah, just they like, can do the exact same things that I can do. Yeah, and it's just totally not the case. And it's so, just not how it works. Like you had restrictions on the amount of hours that you could do. You had like yeah. been very open about what was going on and said, you know, from I the second have... I was accepted, even before that, when I was putting in my application, I made it very clear that I was disabled and that was going to impact my ability to work I reiterated it during the interview and I pretty much said look this is this is my life these are my limits and after the first couple weeks um, working there I capped my hours so five and a half hours was the longest I said I could work at one time it was pretty soon after that that I started getting rostered on a lot less and then there was just such a breakdown of communication in that particular workspace that it just became a really toxic place for me to be. And I was getting very anxious just thinking about going in there. I have um, medication for generalised anxiety disorder and it got to the point where I was having to take it before a shift, halfway through a shift and after a shift and even... After all of that, I was usually still coming home and having a seizure. Yeah. And then it was like, you know, you had even, there was also, you discussed that like you needed to be working with another person and and things like that. And I think just the whole way that it was handled was not, was not great. It just wasn't great. Yeah. It wasn't great. And I don't necessarily think that I can attribute that to those specific people working there. I think that just in general, workplaces need more training about understanding disabilities and limitations and all of those kind of things. And it really is so much, like it is so, you know, they're they're obviously, you know, we're talking about you have obviously got, you know, some pretty rare conditions, but disability and chronic pain and chronic illness, it's actually a lot more common than you think. Yeah, it's almost, I don't think there's much less of the population. I think it's almost, I don't, it's not 50-50, but it's pretty close, I'm pretty sure, to the amount of population that does have something and the amount of the population that doesn't. Whether that be a physical disability or mental health issues or whatever, there is a very large chunk of the population who struggles with something. So I think the fact that there's such a large portion of us that are having these struggles means that that kind of training should really be a lot more necessary than what it is at the moment because people just aren't getting that training which leads to that breakdown in communication, breakdown in, you know, trust and just complete breakdown in work relationships. Yeah. And something else I wanted to touch on as well, um, if you don't live in Western Australia, you might not be aware of this, but there is something we have over here called Telethon um, and it's basically a big kind of, fundraiser or like charity and they do lots of events and they do a big um, weekend long kind of live broadcast that raises money and we have like celebrities and carnivals and and like 
people that oh, come over. Fun. Yeah, like singers from like shows and home and away actors and actresses and things like that that come over and yeah. it's all to raise money for sick children, research um, and the children's hospital that we have in Perth. And so in 2012, Sophie was the regional telethon child. They picked to a um, city and a regional. And did you want to speak a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was. And how you know, old were you was, at the time? Sorry, I was I was seven at the time. Yeah. So it was in terms of diagnosis. If you look up the video, they're actually going to say the misdiagnosis. They're yes. going to say that I have arthritis and osteoporosis. Yes, because at the time um, you hadn't been diagnosed. Like they were still kind of under investigation, and it ended yeah. up being AVN. Yeah. So it was a it was an amazing experience. It was especially the weekend where they actually um, uh, broadcast it. I remember me and Connor because Connor was the city boy who was chosen. We had just been stuffed full of lollies. Like they just kept on giving us sugar yeah. to keep us away. And it was like literally because like his family and our family had gone and they like they like covered the accommodation and the like yeah. we had travel there and back and like you had a little schedule thing going on and and yeah, yeah and it was so fun stuff and you know doing the rides and eating all this food and oh, oh, lollies to keep us away she even got a little it smooch was... from johnny ruffo a little smooch from johnny ruffo and the most memeable picture of me i've ever seen yes <laughs> It was actually, um, it was very good. And recently, last year, was um, mine and Connor's 10th anniversary of being on there. And so we were invited to go to Telethon and um, our family did. Connor's didn't at the time because he was quite unwell and since then he has passed away. Um, So that wasn't great either. It was a very hard thing to go through especially as my 18th birthday is coming up because he was a year older than me so as I'm like organizing this birthday party and everything in the back of my mind I'm just thinking I'm gonna be the same age as him soon and And do you feel was that kind of one of the first like encounters I suppose with grief that you've really experienced I would say that it's probably the first experience with grief where I've been old enough to fully comprehend, comprehend and understand and feel it. Yeah. Like we've we've lost people before. Be like being part of a charity that raises money for kids with disabilities, we've lost quite a few over the years. Like Harley Jarvis, who was an amazing little boy that we knew for ages. Yeah. So um, after Telethon, our families had started a um, charity, charity called yeah. Hope Warriors, which since is no longer. But um, that involved a lot of fundraisers for um, yeah children, children with rare, with rare dis- diseases and conditions. Yeah. So we lost quite a couple Hope Warriors over the years, just because, like we were saying, it's it's rare and rare diseases. You, you don't really get cures for rare diseases because there's not enough research into it. Yeah. So Connor passed away late last year. Yeah, it was very sad. It was. It was. It was not a fun experience at all. No. Um, and so we had, um, though, 
on the topic of telethon gone to watch that show. Yeah, and it was it started off great, you know. We all got so to like prefaces, oh, yeah. like just to like get the visual of where this is going. Telethon is a live like the the big kind of event that we're talking about when we refer to telethon is they basically broadcast live for like. Is it like thirty six hours? It's not quite forty eight. Oh, it's not. Quite no, it's twenty four. It's it? twenty four because yeah. they start at like six they o'clock on a Saturday, and go, yeah, and then yeah. they like go through till the next day. So it's all night. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of if you're from WA, you like probably remember you know growing up, like staying up late watching telethon and things like that. Donating Maybe, your pocket money. Donating your pocket money, calling up the call center, like yeah, so. We had been invited to go watch the opening of Telethon, which was broadcasted live, and it was basically it was at the Perth Arena, so it was like stadium grandstand stand seating, and, and packed, like yeah, packed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And so, yeah, what happened? I want to say we got it was less than two hours. I it think. was like. An hour Not and even an hour, like, like maybe like just an hour. And I suddenly got this feeling, and I looked over at Mum, and I just said, "Mum, we need to go right now." And she kind of half grabbed me, and we're trying to make our way up these stairs like as fast as I can. And I think I just hit like the top of the like stairs, just. and I just went down. Meanwhile, there's like people that are because this is like. The doors just stay open. You can go in and out. You can get food, like whatever. So people are going up and down the, like trying to go up and down these stairs. Like the staff, (laughs) the like staff are kind of freaking out a little bit because they're like, "What do we do? What's going on?" And then they ended up medics in there. Yeah. So then we, um, you know, once you came to, we ended up calling it a night. Yep. Home time. Yes. Yeah. It was not a great experience. I do not recommend. No. And so in regards to kind of your, like where you're at now, how do your conditions impact your day-to-day? I would say my, like, physical conditions, as in, like, the problems with my legs and stuff, definitely don't impact me nearly as much today as they did when I was younger. I do still get a fair bit of pain. There is still a lot of things that I can't do and I will never be able to do. And that's just something that I've kind of accepted. And I just, you know, live my life doing the things that I can do and that I do enjoy doing. The seizures are where it gets a bit finicky because I'm kind of just having them almost not randomly but they just happen in very inconvenient times like um yesterday was leisha uh i suppose we can pretty much call her our sister-in-law it was her birthday so i've gone to the shops to get her a cake or whatever and i've walked back to the car because it was just over the road where my where um mum's partner and um his son were having t-ball practice and I've walked over and I've sat in the car because the aircon's in there and I've just gone, oh, my God, not again. And I've just had a fit in the front of this car and Tristan's, like, just strapped my seatbelt on over the top of me and just driven home because it's just 
it's it's an inconvenience. Like they don't hurt me unless I hit something, and they like they're not painful, but they're just annoying. And it is like it's obviously had an impact. It's impacted your plans for uni. It impacted yeah. you know your year twelve. License, like, yeah, and so how, yeah, I suppose, like, in terms of managing it, that's kind of still a work in progress. Where I'm in the process now that I've started seeing this new neurologist who is absolutely lovely. I'm actually now in the middle of getting a diagnosis for something called FMD, which is functional neurological disorder, which is pretty much a physical neurological response to a psychological stressor so I think we were talking about this earlier because I've been in so much pain for such a long period of my life I learned how to dissociate at a very young age and for like anyone who doesn't know dissociation is pretty much it's similar to zoning out but it's like extreme zoning out so you kind of become unaware of your body and how you feel and all of those kind of things so it was having that ability from such a young age and to such an extreme degree combined with all of the recent you know stress and pain in my life has resulted in my body just pretty much shutting down and going no like you're not you can't deal with anything else right now so you're just gonna lie on the floor and have a seizure for a minute so you can chill out and what was that analogy that you told me about before the cup yeah so the way that the uh, psychologist originally explained it to me up in um the city was so say that there's a cup of water right and it's already it's already full if you then try to pour more water into it the cup's not going to hold it. It's just going to spill everywhere. So that's pretty much what your nervous system does. Because I have had, you know, so much physical pain and so much ongoing pain and trauma and all of these things, my body has already had enough. So now when anything happens, when I get anxious or when I get stressed out or when I have pain, my body just taps out. It goes, no, we can't deal with anything else right now. No. And I have a seizure. Yeah. And would you say, what would you say are like some misconceptions around your like disability and conditions? I would say it's not necessarily a misconception, but something that really frustrates me is when other people try to decide your limits for you. Mm. And it's something I've experienced all the time. Like even mum still still does it occasionally and it always comes from the best of places but it just is so infuriating when it's nobody knows your body more than you do you are like like I am perfectly capable of knowing what I can do what I can't do um you know what's pushing myself too far when it's safe to push myself too far like all of those things I'm perfectly capable of being able to determine that for myself like if I thought that I was going to have a seizure I wouldn't go for a swim in a pool because that's not smart do you know do you know what I mean yeah so it's like I don't especially people who don't know me like 
teachers used to do it a lot in school and it used to give me the shits where it would where a teacher would tell me not to do something because oh what if this happens like I went to a private school for a couple years and it got to the point where they forced me to use my wheelchair the entire time I was on school ground so that I wouldn't hurt myself and it just got me so 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 frustrated because I thought you have no medical training you know nothing about me you know nothing about this condition but you're in the position where you get to demand that I use my wheelchair full-time that's that's something that's always really gotten to me and I don't know if it's gotten to you as well yeah but it's just like I, I could never tell you what you could and couldn't do with your body because it's your body not mine and that's like what we were saying earlier you you know though every you know though there's so many other people in the world that have endo but the way that I experience it to the next person is going to be so different like you know so many of us we you know we can have chronic illness and chronic pain and and things like that but if you don't experience it or like your my experience is going to be very different to the next person's experience and then yeah uh, and then going on from that um we were talking you've had a poem that was published about pain and about how you know that can be quite lonely and isolating and very similar in that sense you know you and I both experience chronic health conditions but they're very different from each other yes we both have CRPS but the way that we experience that could be very different and very different and yes we have both got very amazing support systems around us but that doesn't mean that it can't or it doesn't feel isolating at times because unless you do experience it, it can be very hard to understand. And even then, the experiences are very different. Like I think I was saying earlier that like you, I don't know if you've spoken about your fertility issues on here at all. Yeah. But um, I cannot relate to your fertility issues, you know, mostly because I have absolutely no interest in having children at this point in my life. And you know, also because I don't know if I'd ever want children. So that's a struggle of yours that I I cannot relate to. And similarly, you never, I don't think you ever wanted to, you know, go up to the city to go to uni. So you can't relate to that struggle of mine. So even though we're both, you know, sisters and we're close and we both struggle with these health conditions, we can't always relate to exactly what the other person is going through. Yeah. And, um, yeah, your poem that you had published, I think if we can, we might share it on the blog or on the Instagram page or something like that because it's a really good, it's really great. Yeah, it's called um, Her Brokenness because that's what a lot of, especially as, as children, that's what a lot of people would say. It's, oh, she's in a wheelchair because her leg's broken because that was just easier than explaining, you know, AVN to a room of 10-year-olds. So, you know, I called it that, and it's a lot about detailing. I don't know if you've ever felt it, but I've written about it a couple of times where I almost feel like my, like, pain and my illness is a different person. Yeah. And it's kind of like I, I hate it, but at the same time, it almost feels like like a companionship with this thing that's hurting you because it's so like it's the only really constant thing I think I have in my life 
Like, it, it doesn't matter what's going on. It do- doesn't matter if I'm living in the city or, you know, bloody Europe. I'm always going to have this pain. And it doesn't matter who I'm friends with or, you know, what's going on in our family life. It's this one constant thing 24-7 all the time. So it's kind of... It's weird. It's a weird relationship mm. because I... I wouldn't wish what I have on another person. I wouldn't do it. But at the same time, I don't know who I would be without it. Yeah. And I think definitely, you know, like if somebody saw you just like at the shops, they would, I mean, we know, like it's obvious to me because, you know, I notice it in the way that you walk and the way that you stand. And I've obviously been around you your whole life, but you know, yeah. if someone just saw you standing up in the shops looking at clothes in the clothes aisle, they would have no idea. The I actually had an experience with that because I was in my uni class and one of the units I'm doing is storytelling. So we were coming up with the premise of this story, which is like, you know, the, the idea behind it. And we were reading out our ideas and one of my ideas was like, oh, what if you were disabled during the zombie apocalypse? And the professor kind of looked at me and was like, well, you could you could definitely write about that, but that probably needs to be written about by a disabled person. And I said, well, well, I am a disabled person. And he almost looked surprised. And that was my first experience ever like that, where he, je- he had no clue. And it was almost, like, flattering. Yeah. Like, it, like you couldn't notice, really? You couldn't yeah. notice at all? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. I would take that as a compliment. Yeah. The limp is well hidden today. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a real big misconception that I've struggled with. And it's like, even people that know what's going on sometimes, they just don't, you know, it is, it's really hard to understand and comprehend how can somebody be in that much physical pain and still be standing right in front of me and having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think you're the one who showed me that, people with chronic illness should have a different pain scale. Yeah. Because our pain shouldn't be measured in how we're expressing it because we're never going to express it normally. Our pain should be expressed in how much it's actually impacting our daily life. And so a little story we have about this is that this period of time that Sophie was in hospital last year that we were mentioning earlier, there was a a point where, first of all, you were like a week out of that operation on the you know treating the bone infection in your leg come back home you're in back in the regional hospital you were basically basically just being giving panadol which you know we were joking around that she could better do better than that in my handbag (laughs) in your handbag or at home and a um physio had come in and asked you what your pain was out of 10 and i don't remember the score that you gave but it was it was quite high high. and she just turned around and said well no offense but if you were in that much pain right now you would be be like like sweating out of breath or crying and like you know and i just said like you know again there was so much miscommunication in this whole experience and I just said like I don't know if you're aware of her medical history but she's just had surgery she's got a very complex medical history and background and so you know like I don't actually think I could remember the last time I've seen you crying in pain yeah because you're just so used to it and so then there was another um, instance where the same, like 
I, I can't remember if it was before or after the physio, but you had called the nurse because you needed help to get to the bathroom to go to the toilet because you couldn't walk. Yeah. And she'd just come she in. Yeah, then she was just like, off you go then. I was like, would you like to peel me off the floor, love? <laughs> <laughs> I can't put weight on my foot right now. Oh, so my what would you like me to do? Yeah. Oh. It's like, give me a frame or like an arm or something. And this that is like no disrespect at all. Like in total awe of healthcare professionals, obviously, you know, yeah. that it's a vet. We'd that be is pretty a, screwed without them. Yeah, so. a thousand percent. I mean, you know, for for sure we would, like the whole yeah. world would. But the, you know, definitely, I mean, they've always had pressures, but especially in the last couple of years with COVID and things COVID. like that, you know, yeah. a thousand percent. But, yeah, it can, you know, and, like, there was a lot of miscommunication and communication breakdown with that whole experience that made and it very... And understaffing. Yeah. Just, it's, it's not a situation where I necessarily think it was anyone's fault. It was just a lot of contributing factors that didn't um, make for a very good time. Yeah. And I even remember, you actually just reminded me, because I've always had just the weirdest reactions to pain. I remember the first time... I got the first X fixed and just after you have surgery, they have to take off the first dressings. And when they do that, they peel off about three layers of your skin. And I remember this nurse coming in and she starts peeling off these things. And I just pissed myself laughing. Like I just started like giggling and giggling and laughing and I couldn't stop. And I scared the hell out of this poor nurse. And she kind of looked at mum and was like, like, is your kid okay? Like, what's going on? Mum was like, don't worry about it. Keep on going. And I just think that's probably the one story that I have that just illustrates, you know, how people with chronic pain react to stuff like that. It's like, it wasn't even in my, like, it instinctually wasn't, I, I don't instinctually cry because of pain anymore. I've, yeah. like, trained myself out of it. So the closest thing my body could come up with was laughing. <sighs> So I just giggled about it. The entire, like, 20-minute process, I was pissing myself laughing. And I think that just kind of... But, if again, if you had asked me how much pain I was in at that moment, I would have told you, like, eight or nine. Yeah. So just people like us really can't be judged on our, like, in-the-moment reactions to what we're feeling because our nervous systems just don't work like an average person's would. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any, you know, advice that you would give to people listening that are, you know, possibly going down the path of seeking a diagnosis or, you know, in the midst of, you know, going through something in regards to chronic pain or a chronic illness or disability? Get a therapist. Get a therapist. There's nothing – I recommend that everyone should go to a therapist anyway, whether or not you have – chronic health issues but especially if you do having a professional non-judgmental place where you can talk about how you're feeling is a really good thing because like we were talking about it can be really it can be depressing it can be a depressing life and it's also hard because i find that like you don't want to put like those really you don't want to put more on the people around you yeah like you already because they're already 
they're already offering all this support. You don't want to be like, oh, by the way, on top of all of these seizures, I'm also feeling really, really depressed. You don't really want to put that on other people because it just makes you feel more guilty. So having that professional space where you can go to someone and say, look, this is what's happening and it's actually making me really struggle with my mental health and how I'm feeling and having that ability to talk to someone about it is a really good thing and it's something that I will always recommend because I definitely don't think I would have made it the last couple months without you know the therapist that I've had yeah absolutely and before we finish is there anything else that you want to add I just think that you need to remain cautious but hopeful because you don't want to be setting yourself up like we talked about this the first time before all of the audio fucked us over um I was I want to say 10 when I was sat down by you know a physio that I had for a very long time and she looked me in the eye and she's pretty much said look we feel like you're you're never gonna get fully better you are disabled, you're going to be disabled for the rest of your life. And at the time, that was a really, like, that's a hard thing for a kid to hear. It is. It's always going to be. But I am, in hindsight, so glad that I was told then because it means that moving forward in my life, I have never had this grand expectation that I'm someday going to wake up and be perfectly fine and be able to do the same things that everyone else would do. Instead, I have more like reasonable goals and hopes for the future which is I want to get my pain under control and I want to get these seizures under control you know I want to be able to go to uni and get this job and all these things but they're still achievable goals within the span of what my disability affects and that's what is important so no you might not be able to do absolutely everything that you want and would love to be doing in your life and that sucks and no one can say that that can't suck but that doesn't mean that you can't be hopeful about anything yeah absolutely and I have found that too you know like having especially when I went into my second endo surgery and a lot of people around me were like you know oh my god like I hope this works and things like that and I think on the outside people probably just thought oh my god what a negative bitch but at the end of the day I you know and it was something that I had said to some people I'm not trying to come across as negative but I have to be realistic because I know that the chances based on what I know doing my own research based on what I know through other people's experiences based on what I know through my own experience and what I'm being told by my medical professionals, there is a chance that this is not going to make me magically healed and pain-free and like go on with your happy, lovely little life and never have to worry about it again. And if I went into that, you know, I went into my first surgery like so in the depths of darkness because I was just so consumed by this pain and I was just like over it. And went into that with so much hope that I was going to come out pain free. So like, yes, this is it. That hurts you so much. It does. Because when it it, and that's exactly what happened. That didn't happen. That was not the case. And so I had to like protect my peace and protect my energy going into that second surgery. And And you know what? It is always better 
to have no expectations and be pleasantly surprised than to have high expectations and to be disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely, I agree with you. And there's a, it's an interesting observation where I think it's, and it's not me trying to be judgmental, but I do think that the people who have never experienced those health issues are the ones going, be optimistic, be optimistic, be optimistic. Whereas if you talk to other people who actually have issues, they're not going to say be pessimistic. They're going to say be realistic. Mm. Like, don't get your hypes like your hopes all the way up here and then be shattered because it's not worth it and it's It's like i you know i think you know if you're just you know you've how do you feel when you've just got like general cold and flu you feel like crap right for a person that's not struggling with chronic medical conditions chronic pain chronic illnesses disabilities if you're not struggling with that you know that there is a very 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 likely chance that in a couple of days or a week or a couple of weeks you're going to be better you're going to take medication it's going to help you you're going to be perfectly fine and back to normal but when you're in the depths of feeling like shit when you're feeling sick you like it's awful like you know that it feels the way that it makes you feel and I just think you know that's the way that you feel based on having a simple cold and flu or whatever it is yeah People with and chronic you, pain and chronic illnesses literally feel like that 24-7. 24-7. But we can't just lay in our beds and not do and anything all day. We it. can't. That's... We have to get on. We have to figure out ways to manage it and get on with our lives. You no, know, you have to go to school. You have to go to work. There's Life still keeps on happening whether or not you feel 100% up to dealing with whatever you have to deal with today. Like, I don't think I've gone into a day feeling 100% in at least the last 10 years. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I don't do it. Yeah. Like, I I still get up and you still get up. We get out of bed. We You go to work. I go to uni. We do what we need to do because you don't actually have another option. Your other option is to what, lie in bed and waste away and be more miserable and that's just going to make you feel worse. Yeah. So it's just, it's it's a difference in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me and hopefully the audio has worked well this time. We're going to hope so. We're going to all we'll cross both our cry fingers. Literally, that'll be the first time we've cried in... <laughs> Yeah, it's not because of pain, it's because of the audio. Yes. So, yeah, thank you. And I will um, hopefully, as I said, share Sophie's poem on the blog or the Instagram page. We, Our mum also has a Facebook page. I think it's called Sophie's Rare Rare Journey with AVN. Something along those lines. Yeah, so if, I mean, if you are interested and want to learn a little bit more, it's not – kept updated super regularly but yeah it's Sophie's Rare Journey with Avian on Facebook and that is a page that our mum has had for quite a few years now and just kind of documented things along the way um, of Sophie's journey so yeah thank you so much for joining me Sophie. You're welcome. And I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Yeah I hope so too we've been talking for long enough. (laughs) 